Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. Another edition of the Behind the U podcast, and we are joined by former quarterback Steve Walsh. Steve, thanks for doing this, buddy. Appreciate you taking the time. Hey, anything to help the U? What about me? <laughs> Not you. The you, no. baby. The you. The you. Uh, I you do a great it. job, though, Josh. I appreciate uh, all your support over the years and, and uh, making you football and, and all, all the things that the U entertaining, so. Appreciate your work. We've crossed paths a few times in, in your many, in your various walks of life. So I'm just going to get right to it, Steve. Let's just, let's just get right to it. The 86 team, best team not to win a championship. True or false? Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't know any other ones. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they were amazing. The talent and the, the skill level and, you know, the work ethic. They were part of laying that foundation as Jimmy Johnson came in and took over from Howard and reset the bar on championship level play. So, you know, I know I learned a lot from them and watching Vinny and, you know, guys like Jerome Brown, of course, and Alonzo Highsmith, Winston Moss, all these guys, you know, in, in their last year at Miami, you know, laid a great foundation for our championship years to come. You know, you mentioned Howard in there, and obviously he, he's passed recently and, and meant so much to the program. You were not recruited by him, but did you cross paths? Well, actually, I was recruited by him. So you were. He was at Louisville. And oh, as, okay, as, I got it. I got as, it. As I know the story, Mark Tressman was called by my high school coach to come and take a look at me up in Minnesota. Mark's family, you know, was, were up in the Twin Cities at the time. And so it was a good excuse for him to go visit his folks and then come check me out. And then somehow Howard knew about me. So Louisville was recruiting me and Howard came to visit the house. And so that was part of the, uh, and, and I certainly, I was enamored and, and certainly was, was honored to be recruited by him, but I just, you know, Louisville and Miami, come on, there's no comparison. Is there, as far as, you know, where would I want to live coming out of St. Paul, Minnesota for the next four or five years? And it's uh, that was a pretty easy decision. You're in Boca, you're in West Palm, you coached at Cardinal Newman. Did you ever have any chances to be around him when he was at FAU and you were up in that area or no? Sure. So as I got out of football, I entered, entered the kind of the private world of mortgage banking. And then I was asked by Howard and some of the people at FAU to do their radio. And, and I was actually the color commentary for their radio game. So it was, it was myself and Dave Lamont. And then Dwight Stevenson was our sideline guy. So we had quite the uh, radio team, I'd, I'd have to say, for a first-year program at FAU. What did you admire most about him? Just, I mean, but you're both offensive minds. He obviously turned, you know, he kind of set the world on fire with how he deployed his offense, especially in that 83 championship game. What did you admire about him the most? He was so strong in his conviction of, of how he wanted to do things and how he wanted to look. And, and I think that's, that's probably pretty typical of a lot of successful head coaches. He had a vision of where he wanted, like, you know, obviously Miami, of course, 
you know, his five-year plan happened to coincide with his contract. I think Howard would always tell you that story, but um, <laughs> the, you know, just at FAU and, and how he wanted to build that program and what he wanted it to look like and, and, you know, taking the baby steps of the, the schedule. And then, you know, obviously the first game they had like 15 guys that were ineligible right before the game because they didn't get them, you know, registered or whatever they had to do with the clearinghouse for the NCA. So, but he was able to manage through all that and, and win a game, I think in his second or third try and, and uh, get things going at FAU. But, you know, he just, he knew what he wanted. He was very strong in his conviction as far as how he wanted it to look and the type of players that he wanted to recruit to, to get him there. So you mentioned that your high school coach, or at least the way you understand the story, had, had somehow reached out to Mark Tressman, who was on staff with Jimmy, right? So could you maybe describe Jimmy coming to the Walsh household in, in Minnesota and his attire and what dad thought of that? Yeah, that was, that was a good story, too. Of course, uh, you know, he comes up there in the middle of winter and it's, uh, you know, and this is a total different world of how kids are recruited. I mean, I didn't get a scholarship offer till November of my senior year. And I, and I was not a highly ranked guy, but Jimmy, and, and I, I'll, I'll get some of the story from my dad and some of the story from Jimmy or Tony Wise, who was the coach then after Tressman moved on from Miami, took over my recruitment. And Tony was like, all right, we got to go up to Minnesota and do a home visit with this quarterback, Steve Walsh. And Jimmy would say, well, why the are we going to go to Minnesota? I don't want to go to Minnesota. You know, where else is he going to go? I think I had three offers, you know, Miami, Louisville, and Iowa State. And, but Tony was persistent and got him up there. He came in and he opened the door. And I remember my dad saying afterwards, it was the shiniest suit he's ever seen. No overcoat. They got lost. They showed up about 10 p.m., you know, in a, in a nice, probably Armani suit or whatever <laughs> he was wearing at the time. And so that was that was our impression. And, you know, obviously couldn't even tell you what he said because I was pretty much sure that I was going to go there. What was the appeal of Miami to you other than was it was it just location? And I and I guess the other thing I'll throw in there was, you know, the 83 game, the championship, right, means so much to this program. But back then, as a kid in Minnesota, did it mean anything to you? Like, did you even watch the game? Like, how much were you even tuned into that? You know, I, I don't recall if I watched it, but I do recall how great of a team Nebraska was because they had, you know, they had the Outland Trophy winner. They had great offense and defensive linemen. They had a great running back. The quarterback, Turner Gill, was an outstanding college player. They had a great receiver. Can't tell you all the names. Don't remember that far back. But, uh, um, you know, obviously they had great players on both sides of the ball. But I can't tell you if I watched it till the very end when we tipped the two-point conversion away and won the championship. I can't tell you I, I watched that. But, you know, in then 84, Jimmy had to come in with really not all of his guys and try to salvage a season. And it, it obviously it didn't end well for Miami down the stretch in 84. But I remember watching the Miami-Boston College game, the uh, Flutie uh, Hail Mary. And I remember turning that game off and saying, I want to go to a school like that. Now, it didn't matter. It could have been Boston College or Miami. And it just so happened that Miami started recruiting me just a few weeks after that. So Jimmy in 85, we don't know what Jimmy's going to become. Hall of Fame coach, Super Bowl winner, national champion winner. Jimmy's still sort of evolving. So what were your first impressions of Jimmy? 
you know, obviously when you look back, he had an incredible resume. I mean, obviously working for Johnny Majors and, and the success they had at Pitt and then really going, you know, and I don't know, there might've been a stop in between, but getting his opportunity to be the head guy at Oklahoma state. And you look back and, and he, they were competing in games. They weren't getting blown out. You know, now every once in a while, maybe Nebraska might roll them, but I mean, they were, they were right there with a chance to beat Oklahoma and maybe a chance to beat Nebraska. So, you know, he was competing and, and he was building his team there. And then obviously you come to Miami and, you know, Jimmy just felt like, okay, now I can get the talent. I can run the defense that I want to run with the athletes that I have available to me. You know, he kept obviously most of the offensive guys. And then he felt like he had the best of both worlds once he got his guys there. But, you know, there really wasn't necessarily a first impression uh, because, you know, he didn't have an 18 year old kid that didn't, you know, follow much outside the Big Ten. You know, I, I didn't know his reputation and I just knew that he was going to have a, a pro style offense. It was going to be in Miami and it was going to be a school that I was interested in with, you know, I was going to go to business school and maybe international finance. Well, what, what better place is there to be than Miami for international finance? Plus there's probably some sunshine and some nice views along the lake, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know, that got better every year. It really did. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's a weird thing, but it just happens that way, I guess. All right. So now in hindsight, his, what was his greatest strength? Well, I think as it, as it turned out over his career, his greatest ability was as a talent evaluator and understanding what player he could fit into his mold and then get the most out of. You know, underlying that was a great motivator, a gifted speaker, and he, he knew how to motivate. I mean, nobody's a rah-rah, win one for the gipper that you see in the movies. That, that rarely exists. But to be able to push the buttons of your team, know the pulse of your team. He had that. And I still remember, and I steal from him all the time as a coach now, you know, when, you know, maybe before practice and maybe it was Florida state week or Florida or, or Notre Dame. And if he didn't feel like we were in the right frame of mind, he'd bring everybody up after stretch and tell us why this day is important. And he'd put it in such simplistic terms that it got your mind right. When you broke that group and you went to your individual or wherever you would go next, you were in the mindset, okay, we got to win this day. We got to do our best and improve today for us to win on Saturday. And that was something that I certainly take away from and making sure you can understand the pulse of your team. And, and that, that's probably what you know, his, his greatest attribute and obviously what he did with the NFL and in valuing your draft picks you know, still reverberates or vibrates through the league as far as, you know, his impact on that. You mentioned Vinny Testaverde earlier. You were talking about some of the greats that were on the 86 team. For some reason, I feel like, you know, Vinny kind of keeps a low profile these days. So there's, I don't think there, there are other quarterbacks of quarterback you that maybe get discussed more. But when you first get there as a freshman from Minnesota and you see this guy, what do you think? <laughs> well, I'll take it one, one step further before I answer that. The first college football player that I saw really up close was Kevin Fagan. And for, for the Hurricane fans, certainly Don remembers, you know, Kevin, unbelievable defensive lineman, went on to play, uh, you know, with the 49ers and have a really, you know, Super Bowl champion and things like that. Well, Kevin was a sweet mate of mine in the old Mahoney Hall. And so, you know, you had the two dorm rooms and you shared the bathroom. 
and I was down there right before my freshman year with the other quarterback that they recruited, Bill Turkowski out of Pittsburgh. I opened the door and there's Kevin with a towel barely <laughs> wrapped around his waist, you know, <laughs> biceps, triceps. He had muscles I didn't even know existed, just popping out his neck and, you know, shoulders. And I shut the door and I, I said to myself, oh my God, what did I get myself into? Because that's the dude that's going to be chasing me. And I was a little scrawny kid of 175 pounds. And that was my first impression of major college football going, holy crap. <laughs> so, but then, you know, obviously then you get down to the field and you see Vinny and, you know, Vinny, obviously six, four and, and chiseled extremely strong, but you know, he didn't look like some of these other guys. He was unbelievable looking quarterback, but he didn't still didn't look like Alonzo Highsmith would look like he was chiseled right out of stone, but you know, he was strong. He was fast. He was mobile. He could throw the ball anywhere on the field, had good rotation. The ball never wobbled out of his hand. And I was like, okay, I got my work, you know, my work cut out to, uh, to get to this level, you know, then two years in the meeting room with Gary Stevens and not really saying much just making sure I stayed awake and listened to Vinny and listened to Gary and, and then just watching the film and seeing the corrections and just absorbing it all with, like a sponge. And that's what I had to be. And then I, I had to gain weight. I had to get physically ready. I mentally ready. And I had to get physically ready to play. Well, you still don't look like Kevin Fagan. Let me just, you know, Oh my God. I, that was just, <laughs> and, and you know what? He, he had so many injuries. He never really was the player he became in the NFL at Miami. I think there was just a brief time where he really stayed healthy. He always had little nagging injuries. And, you know, and again, I don't know prior to that 85 season, how dominant he was, but he certainly looked dominating. He was, he was impressive, dude. All right. What happened in the 86 Fiesta ball? Come on. You're the quarterback, you know, the what happened? You know, I mean, I didn't have the earpiece and, you know, Jeff Toretta, Gino's older brother was the backup. So he was there you know, with, you know, the, the signal caller and he was down there, I was probably down at the other end. And, you know, I mean, I'm probably not gonna lie. I probably glanced over at the cheerleaders a couple of times, <laughs> but as the game got closer and obviously you saw us, you know, with the turnovers and, and they did a, a really good job. They obviously, they had a, a, a great defensive scheme and what their plan was to drop only rush three and drop eight. And that wasn't a defense that was really employed by a lot of teams, but our passing attack was far more advanced than anywhere else in college football at the time. You know, maybe some of the West Coast teams, UCLA, USC, you know, were throwing it pretty good, but we were advanced. And so when we got eight guys dropping and playing zone, we just struggled. And I think Vinny struggled with it. Obviously we had the turnovers, but I think he just wasn't uh, willing to get the ball checked down to his back outside of that you know obviously Alonzo was a man on a mission and we were running the ball and as the story goes as we got down there I mean we were given the freedom as a quarterback to call our own plays so as we get down inside and I'm, I'm going to be off on yard lines a little bit but let's say we get to their seven and a touchdown is going to win the game for us you know Vinny calls a pass and we get a holding penalty. And so he doesn't throw a, an interception there. We just doesn't call a run. So we get called for a holding and then we get pushed back outside the 10. And then we try a pass. And one of those, and I think it was a linebacker, but 
you know, part of that drop eight scheme, you know, and we're trying to throw a red zone pattern and he just, he tries to fit it in like he did all season and he just, he just missed and it was intercepted, you know, but, you know, people on the sideline were saying, give the ball to Alonzo. Well, we should have maybe given it to him when we got to the seven, when it was first and goal at the seven, because Alonzo was a man on the mission uh, that game. He was very focused and determined that they were going to win this game. And, you know, obviously you look on the other side and they, they, you know, they, they rarely crossed the 50. They had, I mean, we, we out statistic them in every category. It's so ugly, Steve, this, the box score is disgusting. I mean, and again, you know, I'm not privy to everything that Vinny and Gary talked about, but all I can say is that that drop eight scheme hurt us. I don't know if we were totally ready for that or not. I mean, I don't recall all the details of the game plan, but I think that was something different that they did. How did Steve Walsh look in fatigues? Did, did that happen? Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I had no clue. I, I get on the, the bus, you know, in front of the Hex Center and, and we're going out to the airport and all of a sudden here comes Alonzo, here comes Melvin, here comes, uh, you know, Michael Irvin. I'm like, Oh, I guess I didn't get the, uh, of course you didn't have memos or emails them. And I, I guess I didn't, I didn't see the note. I didn't get the letter. I didn't see it posted on the bulletin board. I guess I'm like, all right, I guess they're wearing fatigues. You know, I didn't think anything of it. I don't remember Jimmy's reaction. You know, I mean, I, I kind of remember, talking about listen we got one mission when we go out there you know I mean that's not unusual for a coach to say that now you know Jerome Brown might have taken that to a whole nother level and and uh, you know I I don't even know if he was the the brainchild behind it all but I think Alonzo was certainly involved and and uh you know we went out there and those were the first guys that got off the plane and you know the rest is history I know I know this the the steak dinner that we walked out of Nobody wanted to be there anymore. We were ready. It was our last night without curfew. We wanted to get back to Scottsdale and go out. I'll tell you that much. At least, at least I did. I wasn't playing in the game, but you know that that was certainly the impetus behind us walking out of the steak dinner. We had been there long enough. Let's go. Let's go. I got you. Hey, so listen, Steve. You know, eighty-four for Jimmy. It doesn't end well. 85, I think, ends with a loss in a bowl game. 86, we know how that goes, even though the 86 season was unreal and we know how good that team is. And now we're heading into 87. Vinny's gone. Other guys have left. You're the guy to have to battle and ultimately take over. But I guess my bigger curiosity is heading into that offseason, right? We know how it ends for Jimmy, right? We know what happens. We know the greatness that ensues for him, for the program, et cetera. But in that moment, from the time that game ends to spring ball to fall camp, what was the mood around the team? Well, you know, Jimmy had a, you know, as they say, eat crow, you know, he had to apologize. Now I, I found this out. Let me just finish this one, one story. Cause I just heard this. Uh, I do a professional development call every Friday with some guys in Canada and some U S coaches. And this one guy was on the Penn state staff. And he said, after that game, Jimmy went into their locker room congratulated their team, congratulated Paterno, apologized for our behavior. But then before he walked out, said, we'd love to play you next week. <laughs> so, but, but I never heard that story. You know, I, I necessarily didn't confirm it with Jimmy, but I think, I think Wanstead confirmed that with me. But I had never heard that story that after the game, he went in to congratulate Paterno and that team. So anyways, what Jimmy said to us, 
was I never want to go through another season of off field bull like we just went through. So think about what you're doing. Think twice before you do anything. Think how it might affect the team. Think about how much it might affect you. All right. And he said, I don't care if we win another game. I didn't necessarily believe him when he said that, but he said, I do not want to go through that off field bull that we just went through. That was kind of the mindset. You know, obviously we were going to be extremely talented on defense. We had great playmakers in the skill position at the receiver, obviously Michael and uh, Brian blades, Brett Perryman, two tight ends that would go on and play in the NFL and uh, Alfredo Roberts and uh, Charles Henry and great running back. So, the question mark was the quarterback and, uh, you know, believe me, I, I felt that pressure. I felt that pressure of, of going in. I remember Bill Hawkins, my roommate saying to me, Steve, if we get back to the national championship, don't blow it. You know, I'm like, thanks, Bill. Appreciate that Remy. But uh, the pressure was on me, you know, obviously as we get into spring, you know, Daryl Fullington always tells a story to me. He's like, you know, here's this skinny kid that can't really throw it all that far, but he keeps moving the ball, moving the ball. And we're like, what is going on defense? Why can't we stop them? He said, that's when I, I gained some of the respect, but really, you know, when they name me the starter and we go in and we play Florida, you know, obviously that was a big moment, but really to seal the confidence with the team was my second game against Arkansas. That's when, Benny Blades got up after the game and said, we got our quarterback, let's roll, you know, whatever he said after that. But that was the game that really cemented me in the defense and probably the offense because there was a meeting, you know, I always have a meeting the night before the game and you go over the game plan. And I, I spoke up in the meeting. I said, Michael, if we get this look, I'm going to audible. I'm going to give you, I don't like a skinny post route or something. Sure enough, that came up in the game. I audible, I signaled it, and I hit him, and it was a big play. And I think that kind of got everybody in my corner and, and just gave us the confidence that we had a chance to, to run the table. How did you guys work that summer? What was the driving force? Yeah, I mean, I, I give Michael Irvin so much credit, and Melvin Bratton, too. I mean, just from the offensive side of the ball, that, you know, their work ethic was second to none. And you know, I always tell him Michael played hard on and off the field, but he worked so hard. And, you know, there was one particular player that was a great man to man cover. And he was big and fast as Michael and strong. His name was Tim Sims, but he struggled playing the overall defensive scheme. But every time in, in the summer, you're always doing one-on-one. And Michael made Tim cover him every time because he knew if he could beat Tim, he could beat any DB because he could be so physical with his arms and so hard. But I didn't feel like feel that because it was still new to me. I was the guy in between the lines. I can't answer that for for Michael or Melvin or, you know, Benny and, and, and all the other guys that were really were such a big part of that 86 team. I can't answer that one to know their, their mentality. And Jimmy. Jimmy never, Jimmy never talked about it in, in my recollection. He never talked about what happened in eight after the 80 season started. It was new, it's a new year. So you mentioned Florida. What was it like to make your first start? Even though it was a home game, what was it like to make your first start against the Gator? You know, it had to be somebody. You know, 85, my first college game uh, in the OB, 
was the last time we would have lo would lose in the Orange Bowl, and that was '85. And I was on the sideline. We were wearing all orange. Hopefully, they never wear that again. And uh, they were a much more impressive team. I knew in '87 they weren't the same team. They still had Kerwin Bell, but they didn't have the dudes on defense. But they were still Florida. And I threw up before the game. <laughs> I would I would consecutively throw up. You know. 12 more times, 11 more times, I guess. And so it just became my ritual. But I remember sitting under the, the bleachers waiting for the smoke for us to go out. And I had a towel around my neck. I was leaning over that fence that if anybody's been under those end zone, the closed in end zone, there was a little fence in a, in a sidewalk that went from our locker room over to the visitor's locker room. And I was hanging over that fence thinking I was going to puke again. And Melvin Braddon came up and put, a, put his arm around me. He's like, Hey, Walsh, baby, you going to be okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I got, I got it. And uh, ironically enough, the first completion that kind of got me into the rhythm was a little two-handed shovel pass to Melvin as I was falling to the ground. And he, he proceeded to make about five guys miss and run for about a 20-yard gain. And I was like, all right, I know what my job is. Just get it in their hands and they'll do everything else. So that settled me down. And then we went on a nice long drive. Actually, I think I don't think we scored on that first drive, but we eventually you know, made some explosive plays, played the field position game. Our defense obviously showed up, and with the exception of two uh, Willis Pegues snaps over our, our Jeff Fiegel's head, uh, we would have shut him out. But it was ended up being thirty-one to four, so it was a good convincing win for us. Did you say that you threw up before every game that year? Is that real? Every game, yeah, every game. You know, and it's, I can't sit there, but it, I mean, I, I, that's why I end up losing about 10 pounds during the season. But uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of the ritual. It became like by about week seven or eight, it was like, Hey, did, did Walsh throw up? They're like, yeah, okay, good. Let's go. We're ready. <laughs> so they, they just kind of expected it. Looking back at the schedule, by the way. So your first starts against Florida, your third starts against Florida state. They didn't take it easy on you. No, they didn't. And, you know, again, as the story unravels over the years, so Jimmy actually t told me this story. So they had recruited Craig Erickson out of Cardinal Newman out in West Palm, a school that I would later coach as a high school head coach. You know, he knew Craig was a talented kid and, and he's like, all right, well, we can give Craig a few weeks to get ready, get his feet wet. And then if we need him, we can always move him in. You know, they, they knew that I would give them a chance to win. The guy was going to make good decisions. So in the Florida State game, it was not a good half. They were shutting us down. We couldn't run it. We couldn't throw it. I don't know what the score was, but we were losing. Jimmy was almost going to make the change. And I don't know who, if Gary said no, or if Jimmy just said, all right, let's give him one more series and see what happens. But we came out in the second quarter. We had a little success. We still didn't score until about midway through the third. And we were down by 16 at that time. And then we started the comeback and uh, another, another completion of Melvin down the middle adjustment, something we had talked about during the week. And, and uh, he made the adjustment and obviously he was so gifted once he got the ball in his hands and he made a big play for us. So, you know, but that it was that close. And then obviously that point, and then I, you know, through the rest of the year, I, I kind of was up and down. I wasn't, you know, I was consistent that I wasn't making mistakes, but I can't say that I was, lighten people up you know and, and throwing the ball but we were doing enough good things to win football games not only win football games you got you won a championship so you, you got it done well we you know my point is that then 
as the season got to the end and we played South Carolina, we played Notre Dame, you know, played solid. Uh, obviously, defense showed up and we shut them out. Then we had South Carolina the next game on a short week, I believe. I think it was a Thursday night game. And I, again, I don't remember it being a short week, but I do remember that being a Thursday night game. And they had a great defense, a very pressure blitzing defense. And I played pretty good in that game. So that gave me confidence going in, got beat up in that game, but it gave me confidence going into Oklahoma game as it, as it kind of played out, uh, you know, for the national championship. A couple of things, the following, you win the championship, we go in the 88. And as I'm doing my research, Deion Sanders releases the rap video. Did that matter to you guys? Like it, ma it matters in the media. It matters as we look back on history. Did it matter to you guys? Uh, it did. It mattered. You know, it was, I mean, what mattered more, was the fact that we were rated preseason so low. And, and I mean, I get it. That bothered me because that was a slap in my face. But I think, especially some of the defensive guys, they were pissed. You know, they were pissed. They were hot about the thing. I mean, I never let that thing get too much, but I, it was insulting. But I think the defense, that rallied them a lot more. That was a big motivator for them is seeing that rap and saying, Oh, how they think they're going to come into the OB and they're going to win the national championship. No way. Not in, not in our backyard. Yeah. Preseason number eight that year, disrespect you guys are the champs, right? I mean, now what, did you guys feel like the questions were legitimate or not legitimate? You know, I mean, obviously, you know, you lose guys, you know, what ended up what Benny was top five, I think in the, in the draft, uh, Michael was the end of the first round. Brian, both my receivers were early picks in the second round. I mean, you just go down the list, you know, Melvin would have been up there, you know, without having that knee injury, obviously he would have been a higher pick, but you know, you just go down the list and there's great players that were picked off that team. And then you got to try to figure out who's going to replace them. You know, we knew who we had and now we still had question marks at the receiver position, but you know, Chudzinski was going to move into the tight end and he caught everything. Cleveland Gary was going to be in the backfield and, and he was very talented. We had a couple of young tailbacks and, you know, the, the offensive line was, was going to be kind of pieced together with uh, some good, you know, obviously Mike Sullivan was, was a big part of that line and rod holder and things like that. So we had a lot of different guys that were going to be able to step into the offensive line. The Michigan game to you, looking back on it now, what was more unprobable? What was more unlikely coming back against Florida state being down 19 to three or what you accomplished against Michigan midway through the fourth quarter, making up three scores. You know, the, the, obviously the talent level at Florida state was more than Michigan, you know, going into the big house in, in 101,000, I think they set a record that day, which I'm, I know has been broken, but it was not a very loud hundred thousand people because the stadium is designed it's so, so far back. If there was a hundred thousand in a, in a, in an orange bowl design stadium, that would have been difficult. But I mean, I was able to audible, get through everything, not use a timeout. And, you know, there just was such a confidence as I think back to it, we miss a two point conversion. If I recall, that would have put us tied and I'm on the sideline saying, okay, we got to get this onside kick. And then here's the plays we're going to run. And sure enough, we get the onside kick. And, and then, you know, we, I, I complete a pass. I don't know if it was to Cleveland or somewhere, but now we get down in, into, 
you know, field goal range to win the game. And, you know, we, we kind of line it up, but, you know, they're asking Carlos Huerta, who's a walk-on kicker. Okay. What hash do you want it on? And Carlos is, I don't care. Just, I, don't, I don't care. I'm going to make it. It's a, it's a 40 yard field goal. I'm going to make it, you know, like, of course I wasn't on the sideline, but that's, you know, that's the story I heard. Like he didn't care what hash. So we just, we kind of get it right in the middle and he kicks a, I think it was maybe a 30 some yard field goal right down the middle. We, we win the game. <laughs> so, I mean, it just was like, that was the confidence level. It didn't matter who was replacing who, if that guy was a top pick in the draft, next guy's going to come in and do a great job. And that's just the way the machine was rolling, the way they prepped guys, the level of excellence that you were expected to have. There was no BS, you know, excuse me. There was a lot of BS and we had a lot of fun. But the idea is that when you got your opportunity, you're going to be prepared for it and you're going to be successful. It was as simple as that. So that level of excellence, you're a coach now. You mentioned before about Michael's work ethic. Who were the leaders? Like, who did people follow? Like, who ensured the excellence would occur? Going to the 88 season, then I, obviously I took a, a much bigger role in, in leadership. And, and Jimmy would also tell me that. He said, you know, we still thought going into the spring that Craig Erickson was going to beat you out or at least compete with you. He said, and then Steve, you just took it to a whole nother level. And there was no chance Craig had, but I took on a bigger off offensive leadership role. You know, Andre Brown was a fifth year senior who, who at the end of the year was our stud wide receiver, Randall Hill and Dale Dawkins were younger receivers. You know, Chud was kind of, this was his first time playing. So he was, you know, obviously he's a great, great guy and a great teammate. But, you know, I kind of took on that bigger leadership role from an offensive standpoint. When you go over to defense and you got Greg Mark and you got Bill Hawkins, they had a group and they had it, you know, because Hawkins and Mark played a lot in the year before. And they had enough guys that had played enough reps that were, you know, of course, Bernard Clark, you know, Tiger in the the middle who started for, for George Meyer in the Orange Bowl. So they had a good core group of leaders on that defense. You know, on, on offense, you know, we kind of got gutted in the skill positions, you know, so we just kind of had to kind of reload on that. But everybody at that point, they knew the deal. They knew what we had to do in the summer. They knew the amount of running we had to be, the condition we'd have to be in. So it was just, it was on, it was on reload. It was on, you know, kind of automatic pilot on, on the, the work ethic and, and what you had to do to prepare for the season. Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. You know, we can't talk about the 88 without talking about Notre Dame. And there's so many different things to talk about. But a couple of things, I guess one is we mentioned earlier the the, the Sanders rap video, uh, obviously convicts versus Catholics, Catholics versus convicts, the, the whole just backdrop to that game. But I guess what I what I was curious about is that storyline. They're good. Miami's bad. Did that infiltrate the locker room? We know it made its way around the game. Did it make its way into the locker room? I don't necessarily know if that was the driving force behind it. The, the bottom line is they were the next team up and, and we knew they were a good team. We knew that that was our roadblock to another national championship. We didn't mind being the bad guys at all. 
They don't want to call us convicts. I don't care. You know, when they said Catholics versus convict, I thought they were talking about me. I was Catholic still. So. I was about to say you were both, right? Yeah, you know, so, yeah. Well, I, I was never convicted. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, one of my best friends from high school was at Notre Dame. I had visited him. I, mean, I think it was afterwards, but I had animosity for Notre Dame because they didn't recruit me. You know, that's what I was disappointed of. But obviously they were the next team up and we knew that they were talented. That whole backdrop of Catholics versus convicts didn't matter. We, we again, we we don't mind. Call us names. That just rallies us, and, and that's what it did. And and I, I do remember at the end of a stretch, and we had a discussion. Okay, do we go around or we go through? And the decision it was an executive decision. We're going through. So we went through their stretch line. They didn't like that. They started a fight. I'm surrounded. I want to say Shannon Kroll. There was three freshmen that had me, basically protecting me. And nobody got near me. And they, these weren't big guys. These were little guys. One was a running back. And, you know, there's three guys around me. So I'm sitting there during the fight. I'm laughing, you know, looking at all this going on. So, you know, guys are swinging and they're fighting. And anyways, I mean, that probably woke them up more than we needed it. But it seems like that was our MO. We were always any big game. We we're going to have a little fight. We're going to get a little extra airtime. But, you know, obviously, you know, you get into the game and the, their pass rush was really a big part of our lack of success. I mean, we still scored 30 points, I guess. We struggled with them. They, they kept me under pressure, forced some turnovers. And uh, in our defense, forced some turnovers too. But obviously, it's, it's taken on a life of its own over the years. And it's, you know, to them, it's, it's such hollowed ground because of obviously what happened with Jerry Faust in 85. And then that's their last national championship. So that's the only thing they can hang their hat on is, that 88 season for Irish. I read, I read that you guys wanted a rematch. Oh, in the bowl game. Absolutely. You know, we would, we would love for that. We were just, we needed West Virginia to lose. And, you know, obviously uh, that didn't happen. And, and, and Jimmy kind of made that clear. Listen, you guys, you know, this was obviously before the, you know, the fact that you had to win pretty or, you know, you got to impress the bowl voters, but I mean, there, there still was some of that existed. Hey, we got to be convincing that, you know, if we want to play them again, we want to get another shot of redemption, we got to play hard. This And and I remember after that game, Jimmy saying this to the team, he goes, you know, he showed the clip of the, the fumble that wasn't a fumble. And he said, it's over. We lost. We're going to reevaluate every position on the team. If guys that are not playing should be playing, we're going to make changes. <laughs> and it was like, for us, it was great psychological ploy because it totally stopped the bullshit about talking about the game and how we got, because it was now let's worry about my job you know or my my spot and uh so that was really you know very gifted move by jimmy so does that game haunt you at all still or no because that would have been another undefeated season and a chance at another championship yeah i mean i will never shed a tear when i see notre dame lose a football game that's for sure but yeah i i does it haunt me no i mean obviously we had such an unbelievable schedule that year and to have the one loss be that type of game, like, you know, if it would, it was a blowout, obviously the thing would have disappeared years ago, but because it was such a, a meaningful game, obviously more for the Irish than us, but you know, it, it has so many storylines and I feel blessed. The fact that I was a part of it. I feel pretty, I, we didn't, you know, I didn't get the ball out of my hands sooner on that corner route when I had Leonard Conley open, but it didn't happen. You know, we, we certainly fought hard and, and we, we took it right down to the wire. Obviously, we were the most 
not taking anything away from Notre Dame, but we were probably the most impressive team at the end of that season, just the way we handled Nebraska and, and all the way down the, the stretch of that season. Steve, just going through some of the guys that were on the team when you were the quarterback from the defensive side of the football, you mentioned a lot of those names before, whether it was 87 or 88. I mean, your practices must have been insane. The spring was the only time we went ones and ones. Now, we did every once in a while, we might have an inside run period where it was ones versus ones just for a toughness drill. But then you're working against the scout team. And I say that tongue in cheek because on the scout team was a young Ryan McNeil who goes on and plays, you know, multiple years in the NFL and is a great college player. You know, and, and I, I could go down the list. Maurice Crum, probably Darren Smith was probably one of those guys. Michael Barrow certainly was one of those guys. You know, all these guys end up being tremendous players. And Jimmy, when he'd watch the offense, he wasn't watching the offense. He was watching those scout players and he'd get in their ear and he's like, kick their make it tough on them don't brother-in-law it as they say like hey i'll take it easy on you you take it easy on me but he made them fight and you know gary stevens would get so pissed off that he'd make us run gassers then he'd make the scout team run gassers too just because they were kicking us practice certainly was competitive and then obviously in the spring we were one of the few teams that actually went ones versus ones the entire spring you know that was not you know the way things were done in college football you know in, the, in that time in that era but uh, now it is. There's so many big names that have come out of this program, your era, just before, just after the 2001 team run. Was there a guy, maybe an unheralded guy or a guy that doesn't get his name mentioned as much that was a vital part or a cog to those teams or someone that you just kind of like salute, like, man, we couldn't have done it without him. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, from the 87 team, it was definitely Warren Williams. So Warren, who went on to play for the Steelers, I think he ended up getting like nine years in the league. But, you know, there was a touchdown pass against Florida State. And Warren is supposed to block the linebacker to the left. He sees the linebacker on the right coming. And, and it was part of the rule, but it was kind of a little bit of an afterthought that you're supposed to check your guy. And then you kind of look, you see anybody coming, see any color. Joe Brodsky used to say, go hit the color. And Warren comes across my lap in the pocket as I'm getting ready to throw to Michael and just clips the guy off of his like shoulder and the guy spins and he can't reach up and grab my arm, hit the ball. If Warren's not there, the guy hits me and the ball's never away to Michael. That would have been maybe the tying touchdown or the go-ahead touchdown. I think it would have been the tying touchdown. It was about 30 yard touchdown. It wasn't the long 65. So it was, it was about a 25, 30 yard touchdown, somewhere in that range. And if Warren doesn't make that block, we don't get the ball off. And that was above him. And then we kick a field goal and who knows what happens. So, you know, but Warren was such a dependable runner. He always, he protected the ball and he did everything right. You know, so Warren definitely was, you know, from that championship season uh, was a, was a great, great player for us. And I don't know, I guess on defense or excuse me on, on the 88 season, you know, Andre really was the guy, as I mentioned already, you know, he was a guy who couldn't get on the field. Now, as it turned out, he had, you know, a future Hall of Famer and two all pros that, that were in front of him. But, you know, he was he was ridiculed and he he stayed. He could easily transferred and he just he became a dude his senior year. And uh, he was a difference maker for us uh, in 88. All right. Last thing, since you uh, you're a CFL coach. You get to rewrite the rule book. Is there a rule in the CFL that you would like to bring to the NFL? I mean, the easy one is after field goals, 
you can get the ball at the 35-yard line. You don't have to kick off. So the opponent, if you just got a, a field goal kicked against you, you can say, okay, I want the ball at the 35-yard line. It's a nice rule because obviously you got great field position. You get a chance to go answer the score. That would be one rule. You know, obviously having everybody that can motion, you know, even if you're on the line of scrimmage, you can move laterally along the line of scrimmage. I mean, that's a great rule because it opens up the door for a lot more skill set. You got a guy right across from you if you're a wide receiver and you can't really, you don't have that quick twitch to get off press coverage. You're going to struggle getting all the way to the NFL, but in the CFL, you can, you can survive because you can move. So that would be, that'd be an interesting one, but the field goal thing is a, you know, and, and honestly, the way the NFL wants to get rid of the kickoff anyways, that, that rule is probably coming. Steve, man, this was awesome. You told some great stuff with behind the U is getting behind all the good stories from, from everyone's path, their team, their teammates, uh, their journey, you know, their time at the U. So man, I appreciate this. I know, I know we've had a chance to cross paths many times before, but man, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. All right, Josh, appreciate everything. And, uh, get that U back in a, in a major bowl game again. <laughs> <laughs>